There is a popular song making the rounds just now, at least in church circles, and it's entitled, How Beautiful. It has haunting lyrics. The tune is very pleasing. One of the lines in that uh, song talks about how beautiful the people of God. Perhaps that songwriter was thinking about that 24th verse. When we read about the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Now that's beauty. Righteousness is the fulfillment of our responsibility and duty to each other. Holiness is the responsibility of our duty to God. So true righteousness, right relationships with each other, and right relationships with God, holiness, gives us that wonderful kingdom of God on earth kind of fellowship and unity in Christ. Paul is addressing in our text today that minority of Christians who live in one of the most sinful cities of the ancient world. Indeed, sailors who walked up that marble walkway through that colonnade into the marvelous city of Ephesus, a huge city, encountered the first outdoor advertising in the way of a pointed foot directing them to the nearest brothel. It was tough to be a Christian in Ephesus. And Paul sends the Christians this stern warning that they must no longer live as the unbelievers live because, he said, their old self was corrupted by deceitful or deluded lusts. It's a terrible thing to be caught up in a burning desire, isn't it? That does corrupt life. I remember having such a burning desire when I was four or five years old. I wanted a red dump truck for Christmas. Didn't matter that my family was going through a real hard time. Didn't matter that we were in the middle of the war years. I had to have that red dump truck. I lived and breathed and thought that red dump truck. Everything in life pointed me toward the satisfaction of that burning desire to have a red dump truck. Wonder whatever happened to that thing anyway. Finally, that Christmas, I, I got my red dump truck. And in retrospect, as thinking back on that Christmas, when the baby boy got his red dump truck, I don't think anybody else in my family got a gift that Christmas. But even had I known that, it would not have deterred me because I had this burning desire to have one. And it didn't matter that nobody else got a Christmas gift. I had to have my red dump truck. Philip Yancey, in his book, I Was Just Wondering, has talked about the new kind of determinism that is rampant in our culture. People caught up in this burning desire to have something. The Bible calls it that more jarring word, lusting. He talks about that lusting. He, he says he, he hears speeches similar all over the country. This, this particular malady grips uh, both sexes. Neither is off limits to it. But he said it attacks uh, men most often, and most often it's men in their middle years that they are caught up with this burning desire. And their speeches generally go something like this. I, I, I'm just not the same man I, I was when I married her. 
We've just outgrown each other now. Uh, we are no longer compatible. Or that old faithful, I am just not happy anymore. I am not being fulfilled in this relationship. And he said to try to talk to somebody who's in the grips of a, of a burning uh, desire like that, to try to get that person to be objective about uh, their future and about their family or their career or, or about their life, to try to be a, objective about what they're doing is, is like asking an out-of-control alcoholic to reassess his need for alcohol at a wild New Year's Eve party. Pretty tough to do. Because, he said, people caught up in this uh, deceitful desire are dealing with the strongest thing they have encountered. It, it's it's uh, stronger than their vows that they took at their wedding day. It's stronger than their paternal feelings, their relationships to their children. It's stronger than anything they, they've run up against. And so they feel out of control. It's, quote, bigger than I am. I'm going to have to give in to it. He says, uh, your old self was corrupted by deceitful lust. Now, what does he mean, deceitful? It means they can't keep their promises. It means they're empty. You think, if I could just have this, or have her, or have him, if I could just get that, then my life would be whole, but we discover it's deceitful, it can't pay off. It's a part of the old self he's talking about that needs to be traded in. Let's look at a couple of the marks of that old self. He said uh, those who are still unbelievers are, are caught in this uh, futility of mind. They were futile in their thinking or in their minds. Now, futility indicates a vacuum in accomplishment, a lacking in accomplishments. That's, that's futile, a vacuum in any kind of accomplishment. Every person, in order to be whole, in order to be fulfilled, in order to live life on tiptoe and with abundance, as the Bible says it ought to be lived, needs some meaningful, purposeful fulfillment. One of the reasons why people become Christians is in order to find that meaningful, purposeful fulfillment. Apart from God, there is no such fulfillment. Indeed, you encounter people time and again who who have succumbed to the premise that, that we are here as mere cosmic accidents. We, are, we, we, didn't, we can't say with Jesus, I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. And when people don't have come from nowhere and they're on their way to nowhere, then life is an exercise in futility. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It all adds up to zero. Can't get anywhere. It's like combing your hair in a convertible. Futile. Just get nowhere. What is the end of all of it? Vanity is the end of all of it. That's what the Bible says, a striving after wind. It, it, it comes to nothing. Futile in their minds. And then secondly, he says, darkened in their understanding and alienated from God. Darkened. Have you, have you never loved someone and prayed for someone for a long time and, and finally, they, they hear the gospel, and they're totally impervious to it. I mean, it makes no impact on their lives. 
Have you ever looked at someone who's, who's, who's ruining their lives? They're on the road down and, and you never, you, and it's crystal clear to you, but, but you just can't get them to see it. Paul wrestled with this darkened of mind that he talked about. And, and finally, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he explained it this way. He said, the God of this world has blinded the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Jesus Christ. The God of this world can blind us like that. And you and I know that happens. I think about William Pitt, the younger, one of the most uh, intellectual men of his time. William Pitt, the prime minister of England, had a good friend named Wilbur Wilberforce. Wilberforce, more than any other person, was responsible for the eradication of slavery in the United Kingdom. Wilberforce had had a genuine Christian conversion. And out of that conversion, he understood that all people are the children of God. All people are created equal before God. And he gave his life to eliminating slavery. Because he was a Christian, he was concerned about his friend, the prime minister. And so he kept inviting him to go to church with him. There was a man preaching in London at that time named Richard Cecil, who was a powerful proclaimer of God's word. And, and Wilberforce kept thinking, if I could just get William Pitt to go and hear this man. William Pitt was a nominal Christian. Most people in England were nominal Christians at that time, but the gospel didn't really mean anything to him. And so he was always busy on Sunday. Finally, the day came when Pitt said, all right, I'll go with you. Today's the day. And all the way to church, Wilberforce was praying, oh God, let the music be right. Let the preacher be faithful and strong and let the word penetrate his heart. And so they, they, they went to the service and Wilberforce said, everything was just perfect. The choir, the music, all the worship. And he said, Richard Cecil had never preached more powerfully in all of his life. When they came walking out of the church, Wilberforce was hardly breathing, waiting for the response from William Pitt, that intellectual giant. William Pitt said, I didn't understand a word that man said. Not a word. None of it came through to him. He didn't understand it. Because the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. And until the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts and our hearts are softened and our mind enlightened, we're just playing church. We don't have church until there is an enlightenment of our minds and until the message of God can penetrate all the way to the soul and the marrow of our bones. He says they are darkened in mind and they are alienated from God. And more than that, he says, it's their own fault. Now, hold on a minute. It's their fault? What does he mean by this? Look at the first chapter of Romans. Paul tells us that God reveals himself even to the unbelievers. God has revealed himself in nature. Now, it's not a complete revelation. It's certainly not a saving revelation. It's no, in no way complete. But God has nonetheless revealed himself in nature... And what did the unbelievers do? They rejected the revelation they were given. 
what little bit of light they were given, they sinned against it. Every little instinct, every little prompting of the Spirit, Paul says, you've sinned against it. So it is your fault due to what? Your ignorance. And your ignorance is due to your hardness of heart. It's made you callous. And the way we get callous is by continuously rejecting the leading of God's Spirit. It isn't that God stops leading. It isn't that God stops appealing. It isn't that God ever says, that's enough, that's my last effort, I'll never reach out to that person again. God's not going to do that. If anybody goes into hell, they're going to have to climb over the outstretched body of Jesus Christ. God doesn't stop reaching out, but we stop hearing it. We stop feeling His Spirit. That's what he was talking about when he wrote to Timothy, saying, Some have seared their consciences, covered them with a callous, so that they no longer feel they have lost their sensitivity. Now what is needed for those who are still bound in the old nature is a radical change. The apostle says it in this text, and he says the radical need here is not just to be better people. Not just to clean ourselves up a little bit. I hope you don't hear me raising the bar of morality. I'm not raising the bar of morality. That's the most futile thing in the world, to raise the bar of morality until there has been a radical change. And how does the apostle say the radical change? He said it ought to be as radical as taking off those old worn-out clothes and putting on brand-new clothes. That's the way he talks about it. Not just talking about cleaning up our clothes, spot cleaning our clothes, patching up our clothes, a patched clothes are not a good uh, symbol for a Christian. We're talking about burning them, getting rid of them forever. We're talking about a, a change like Lazarus hearing the voice of the Christ calling him from death into life. That's the kind of radical change we're talking about. And when you've been called from death into life, your grave clothes are inappropriate. You wouldn't wear grave clothes to a wedding. We've got to get rid of those old clothes. Put them off, he says. Get rid of them. You aren't on the way to the funeral anymore. You're on the way to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And when you're on your way to the wedding supper of the Lamb, You want to dress appropriately. And here, appropriately, is that new self. Put on that new self. You say, well, I knew about that new self at one time in my life, but but what's the key to living out this new life? The key to living out this new life is in verse 23, and that is the renewing of the mind, the renewing of the spirit of the mind. That's where we come down. And only the Spirit can do that renewal. We have to be willing to let it happen. We have to be willing to trade in our old mind, to let it go in favor of the new. Every time I think about a trade, I think about that little car I told you about once before. This came 10 years after Gene and I were married. We had our family. I'd been in school working on my doctorate for three years. And every time we'd get a decent car, I'd have a tuition payment due, and I had to sell it and trade down. I was about as low as I could get and still move from here to there, to call it transportation. 
His little foreign car, about as big around as this pulpit, felt that way, and it had had little old, uh, headlights that looked like frog eyes on the front of it. You remember those round ones that stood out on the fenders? And when you opened the doors, they opened from the front. So if you had your lights on and your doors open, it looked like a man with big eyes and big ears running, going down just the head of such a person. That little old uh, engine in it, a tiny little thing, about the size of a Singer sewing machine, and, and it ran good. But the thing is, you shut it off, it just didn't want to shut off. Worked on the timing, it just keep on dieseling. And I had in my church a new member who, who owned a car dealership in Savannah. And, and he was so proud that I had gotten my doctorate. He wanted me to come and speak to his salesman every morning at a fancy breakfast, at a fancy restaurant. I remember the day I drove in there in the middle of all those new cars and all these men with their fancy suits on, and I turned off that little thing I was driving and stepped outside, and it started shimming and shaking. Like that, you know. It wouldn't, wouldn't shut off. And just when you'd think it was through, it'd go pop and start over again. I kicked it a couple of times. It kept on. And I was embarrassed, but not nearly as embarrassed as my new church member who owned the dealership, that his pastor, who had a doctorate, was driving a car like that. Now, you're talking about shame. He felt shame. He pulled me over to one side. He said, could you get rid of that thing if I'd give you a new car to drive? And I said, today, today, right after we finish breakfast. I'll be rid of it. The nearest parking lot to that restaurant gave me $215 for that car. And I caught a ride to the dealership, and I drove a brand-new demonstrator home to my family. I'll never forget it. And I tell you, I'll never forget today either, when for the first time in my life, when I said, God, I want to be made new, I meant it. I shall never forget the night in my life when for the first time I was really ready to make a trade. I was ready to trade in my old mind and get that new mind in Christ. And you know, this is the only thing here in this text that is in the present tense, which means that we have to keep on letting our mind be renewed. It isn't enough that this happened to us one time. That's all important. But there must be those succeeding times when we yield ourselves again and again to Christ and let him renew our minds. When have, we, when have we renewed ourselves? When have we let Christ renew us? You know, we're into renewal. We're into re to the renewal of our heads. Think how much we spend on our hair if we still have a little bit of hair. Uh, you know the difference between a haircut and hairstyling? About fifteen or twenty dollars. I mean, we spend it on our we spend it on our ears when our hearing goes bad. We spend it on our teeth, Lord, what we spend on our teeth. We we spend a lot. What are we doing for the inside of our heads? Here, the scriptures talking about the inside. You know, people get concerned about the outward, but if you don't handle the inside, think about how many outward pressures the apostle had. He was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. He said, I had all these things in the constant pressure of the churches. But he believed we could be transformed by the renewal of our minds. 
And because he was being renewed internally, he was experiencing mental renewal, he had power over all his outward pressures. We try to deal with the outward and neglect the inward. We'll never get power over anything. We'll never have fulfillment or joy. We get that inward renewal and then we have the power over the outward. We don't let that big squeeze, the world squeeze us into its mold. We don't let that happen because we know we have to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We have to give the Spirit permission to live in and direct our lives. We have to give the Spirit permission to remold us after His will and His purposes. Henry Van Dyke wrote one time saying, you may have to live in the crowd, uh, but you don't have to live like the crowd. You don't have to subsist on the crowd's food. You can have your own orchard and you can drink from your own hidden spring. And the hidden spring is this renewal of the mind. When the mind is renewed, it's springtime in the soul. You can renew everything else in the world, but if you don't have a renewed mind, the source of it, mind and the heart connected, then you don't have springtime ever. We want to recapture the rapture of our first experience with Christ. Actors who have been in plays that have run for a long time talk about the illusion of the first time. They work for the illusion of the first time so they don't go stagnant, they don't go stale. We aren't talking about an illusion here. We want to recapture the rapture of the first time and live in that rapture. How do we do that? The love of God is available. Several years ago, I took my son and my two sons-in-law, and we went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Went out there in January. It was below zero. Real cold spell. It was just right because nobody else was there. We rented snowmobiles. We went up the western side of, of Yellowstone all the way into Montana. Then we went across the northern end of that giant park and then down the eastern side. It was an unforgettable experience. We rode about 400 miles. I remember when we were going across the top of it, we pulled aside to look at Yellowstone Falls. Just took our breath. It was locked into a wintry silence. There was not a sound to be heard. I looked at those falls encrusted with ice, but still that great cataract of water flowing over thousands of gallons per minute. And I thought, how long has that water been flowing? The Indians found it like that. A few thousand years later, the first settlers from the east found it like that. That water flows whether I'm thinking about it or whether I've forgotten it. That water flows every morning. That water flows every night. The only thing I can compare that to is a self-giving God whose love is continuous and unmeasurable. He just keeps on loving. But if we would appropriate that love, we have to be willing to hear in our hearts and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit who wants to remake us and give us an abundant life. I stood on a cliff watching the temple at the Temple of Poseidon on the east coast of Greece recently. 
While there, I thought about Paul coming down from Berea. And then I thought about all those myths and legends of the Greek gods. How those sirens had stood on a cliff like that and played their song, uh, played their instruments and had sung their songs. And the sailors would be drawn to those rocks. Their ships would be wrecked. They'd kill the sailors and plunder their goods. You remember Ulysses, the hero of Greek mythology, really, was coming by there with his crew, but he stuffed their ears full of wax so they couldn't hear the siren song, and they went by unharmed. There was another one who went by unharmed as well. His name was Orpheus. He was the best singer, the greatest musician in the world. And when his ship started to pass by the sirens, he sang. And when you'd heard him sing, you didn't care about the siren songs. Lesser songs didn't appeal. Isn't it interesting that when they taught their children about Jesus in the catacombs, those early Christians pictured Jesus in the paintings on the wall, holding the lyre of Orpheus. Jesus sang the melodies of heaven. Jesus sings the sweetest songs of all. Sure, they're tempting songs. Sure, we hear them. But they are lesser songs. And having heard our Master sing, none of them appeals to us. Let us pray. Lord God, we've tried it on our own, and life isn't worth living. We want that new self. We want to be renewed mentally. Send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and give us receptive minds and hearts that we might hear your word and do it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is Take My Life and Let It Be, Lord, Consecrated to Thee. Let's sing the first and the last stanzas. And as we sing, if you feel led by the Spirit of Jesus Christ to make your commitment to Him as Lord and Savior, I invite you to come forward this morning. Or if you're already a Christian and you want to transfer your church membership here, we'd be pleased to receive you as we stand to sing.
Is that right? Mark Hawthorne comes.